Well, good morning, church. I want to welcome all of you, especially those of you who are joining us online. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, I know many of you were here during the 9 o'clock service as well, where we uh, uh, were ministered to by our South Sub kids. What an amazing uh, Christmas program that they did. Uh, Pastor Joe said before uh, the play to me, he said, we need to stop preaching and just have children's programs every week. Because it was packed, and this just validates his concern. But uh, I, am, I know many of you also watched online, so uh, thank you for doing that. And, and thank you for being here as we continue in our series, What's in a Name? Um, this was a busy place yesterday. Uh, I don't know if you were here yesterday. And, uh, well, I've misplaced my notes, so I'm going to have to do this from memory. This is dangerous. Not the sermon, I got that. Uh, so we had a brotherhood breakfast uh, yesterday morning. Uh, uh, Mike uh, Corbell said, if you need to know the differences in how God has created us, come to the Brotherhood Breakfast where we had burritos and paper plates with napkins on the floor to catch the coffee drips, and then the sisterhood tea, china, and centerpieces, and tablecloths. It was absolutely stunning. I didn't even want to go in there because I knew I'd mess something up. But uh, And then, of course, South Sub Kids practice. Uh, folks from our church were deployed out into various ministries. Uh, uh, Operation Christmas Child uh, over, um, I know where I have the notes. See, I'm, I'm almost a millennial here. Can you, can you tell? And uh, we had, uh, Joe is going to so read me the riot act later. 692 shoeboxes, final count for Operation Christmas Child. From the southwest Denver area, 13,960 shoeboxes from our uh, fellow churches, filling two and two-thirds semi-truck trailers. Wow, what an amazing thing. Yesterday during the Brotherhood Breakfast, um, uh, we uh, uh, took a, up a love offering uh, to provide blankets for the refugee ministry at South High School. Uh, $500 was raised for that. So God is at work. God is at work in this place. God is at work in this community. Uh, I know that you read news articles about how the church is dying and how the church is dead. Mm, whatever. So God will always have a people. God is at work. God is doing great things. Glory to God. In the midst of all of the bad news, there is great news that is going on. So uh, we continue in our series, uh, What's in a Name? Uh, we're in the season of Advent, uh, which is a time of preparation. The great uh, 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 contemporary theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a, an opponent to Nazi Germany, was ultimately arrested and put to death in a concentration camp. Uh, Bonhoeffer said, The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Well, that pretty much sums up all of us, so I'm glad that you are here. You know, Advent is actually derived from the Latin word adventus, which means coming. Uh, it's the translation of the Greek word uh, uh, perusia, or perusia, uh, which uh, means, it, 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 that is a word used to focus on the second coming of Christ, the, the great return of Christ, the great consummation. Uh, so it's kind of odd that we're talking about this. So just give me a second. During the 4th and 5th centuries, 
uh, in Spain and, and Gaul or southern Europe, if, if you will, southwest Europe. Advent was a season of preparation uh, for folks to be baptized uh, on the feast day of the Epiphany, which is after the new year. Epiphany is a holiday that remembers the visitation of the Magi, Matthew 2, 1. Uh, his baptism in the Jordan by John the Baptist, John chapter 1, verse 29. And his first miracle at Cana at a wedding feast in John, I'm sorry, yeah, John chapter 2, verse 1. So during this time of preparation, <clears throat> Christians would spend 40 days. So it was 40 days of preparation back then. A prayer, a fasting, to prepare themselves for the celebration of their baptism. And it would not be for uh, hundreds of years before Advent became connected with Christmas. Um, in the 6th century, so near the end of the 6th century, Christians started to talk a little bit about the coming of Christ in His first coming as a baby in the manger. But this whole idea of Advent being a prep time for Christmas uh, didn't really start until the Middle Ages. That is, so we're rooted in celebrating and observing a season which we are to be focusing on the second coming of Jesus as we prepare to celebrate his first coming, when Christ will come as judge of the world. Uh, Advent symbolizes the present situation of the church in these last days, and we Christians are always called to live as if we are in the last days. And I know that's hard when Christ has tarried for over 2,000 years, but our call as Christians is to live with the expectation that Jesus will be coming back this afternoon. How would you live your life differently if you knew that at 2 o'clock this afternoon Jesus would be coming back? That's how we Christians are called to live every moment of every day. Just like the Jews uh, uh, celebrated their seasons, thinking and remembering about their, their time of exile, waiting for the prayerful expectation of the coming of the Messiah, so too, and their time in Egypt, so too do we as Christians look at this season of Advent as a time to look for the coming of the Messiah again, the anticipation of the coming of Christ's kingdom, a kingdom of perfect peace, a kingdom of perfect justice. So in many ways, Advent is what we call a penitential season. That is, it's a season of, of reflection, of prayer, of repentance. And for most of the history of the church, the church was devoid of decorations. Uh, it was very simple, very plain, maybe an Advent wreath, although they didn't come until about 1839 by a Lutheran pastor. But those four candles, anciently, and they've changed a little bit over the years, but anciently celebrated uh, hope, faith, joy, and peace, and that those would be realized at Christ's second coming. Now, we've changed a lot, haven't we? Our churches are now decorated, they're festive in spirit, and most of that is uh, some deference to culture, I suppose. But culture is also changing. Traditions help keep us focused even though traditions change as well, especially in the Christian church where we don't really have any central authority. If there's one thing we like about the Christian, if people always say, I don't believe in organized religion, I say, well, then you need to join the Christian church because we ain't organized. <laughs> but we live in a culture that is growing more and more secular. It really is. And the culture is forgetting more and more the foundations of our faith. And that's why it's even more important for us as believers to look back at that greatest unheard population of the church, our forebears, our ancestors, who remind us of the importance of preparation, 
who remind us of the importance of focusing on what's really the reason for this season. And that is God with us. Emmanuel, the birth of Jesus. This year, Pastor Joe and I are inviting us into a time of reflection about Christmas, and we want this to be a little different for you this year. What's in a name? Who is Jesus? Who are we? Now, in the Hebrew, names are very, very important. If you read the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, you will see time and time again that people's names, in many ways, influence and inform who they are and what they're doing. Their purpose, their context, their expectations. Last week, Pastor Joe did a great job kicking us off, helping us be set for this season of reflection. And my hope, and you're going to look at me with a quizzical eye, although I can't really see much more of you than your eyes, so that's fine. You're going to leave this place each week a little bit confused, and that's a good thing. We want you to think. We want you to pray. We want you to wrestle with these names that we're sharing with you over the course of these messages. Come back on Christmas Eve, and it will all make sense to you. And I pray, and I believe, and I'm this close to guaranteeing you, if you come back Christmas Eve, if you're attentive to these messages, this Christmas will be unlike any other Christmas you've ever celebrated. Its power, its meaning, and its focus will truly, truly bless you. So with that introduction, if you have your Bibles or however you read God's Word, your phones, your tablets, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79, which is our focus and our text for today. Luke chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Let me break here. If you have our uh, YouVersion Bible app, I hope that you'll pay attention to the notes. If you like paper, we have those available at the uh, Welcome Center. Some of those portions of those notes will help unpack some of these words that we oftentimes read over but don't really think about. For example, what on earth is a horn of salvation? But you got to do the notes to find that out. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Pastor Joe talked about that word righteousness, that name, righteousness, before him all of our days. And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. Who's he talking about there? We'll talk about that in a minute. To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Well, the text that I just read to you has been given a name. What's in a name? It's called by the church, are you ready? Canticle 16. Y'all remember that, won't you? Well, most people really understand it as the Song of Zechariah. Or if you talk to any of your Episcopal friends or your Lutheran friends or even your Roman Catholic friends, they'll tell you that this passage is called the Benedictus. This text here in Luke has lots of names. Names that have been given to it by the church over the centuries. It is one of those passages, really one of four passages in Luke, particularly the first couple chapters of Luke, that has been extremely significant in how not only the church understands the coming of Christ, but how the church celebrates the coming of Christ. Now, this passage is really in a larger context. So, as one of my favorite phrases, I really need to give you a little bit of background. Now, Mary, who gives birth to Jesus is related to a woman named Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth, and it's going to get sort of like a, a soap opera, so just hang with me, and if you have to make notes, you can do that, or you can look at the study notes. Elizabeth is married to a Jewish priest named Zechariah. Now, priests can only marry women from the tribe of Levi, so we know that Elizabeth is also a member of the tribe of Levi. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth have not been able to have children all of their life. They're quite old now. Um, um, but as a part of what God is doing here, fulfilling of the prophecies, this is important. Because Elizabeth, like Sarah, way back in the Old Testament, Abraham's wife, is pregnant in her old age. In chapter 1 in Luke, when a pregnant Mary comes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who's also pregnant, Elizabeth's child in her womb begins to leap as Mary walks in. And Elizabeth, in chapter 1, verse 42, says to Mary, Blessed art you among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And why, does that sound familiar, by the way? That's from the Bible. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. You hear that, church? That the mother of my Lord, Elizabeth says to Mary. Verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting, Mary, came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. The very first person to leap for joy at the coming of the Messiah was a baby in the womb. Now, beginning in chapter 1, verse 57, Luke, the writer, the physician, begins to tell us about Elizabeth's baby and his birth. Way back in verse 18, when the angel came to Zechariah to tell them that his wife was going to give birth to a son who would prepare the way for Jesus, Zechariah didn't believe him, just like Abraham didn't believe. And Sarah didn't believe. And the angel says to Zechariah that since he doesn't believe what God is speaking to him through the angel, Zechariah will be unable to talk until the birth of his child. 
So all of this has happened, and for nine months there's been peace in Zechariah and Elizabeth's household. And now the baby has been born. Elizabeth's baby is born. And in the Hebrew tradition, they take this baby to the temple, and Zechariah holds him in his arms, like any good Hebrew father would do, and prepares to bless him and to name him. But he can't speak. And as soon as he takes that child into his arms, his lips are loosed, and he gives that baby a name. His name will be John. The same name that the angel told him to call the child back in chapter 1, verse 13. John. What's in a name? Well, John means Yahweh or Jehovah. Yahweh, the, the, the actual name of God, I am. Yahweh is great, gracious. Incidentally, Ian, my, son, my youngest son's name, is the Scot-Irish version of the name John. The angel said in verse 17, He will go before him. That's what the angel said. Well, who's the him? The Lord. In the spirit and power of Elijah, the angel says in verse 17, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, y'all remember this. At least I'm pretending that y'all remember it. From our last sermon series, when we were looking at Malachi, just in that last message, Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. See, the Lord there in that text, if you go back and you look at that text, the word Lord is in all capital letters. And that's your little insight to know that that word is translating the actual Hebrew word, Yahweh. That is, as Elijah is coming to prepare the way when Yahweh, when God comes. And that's the same statements that the angel makes here in the Gospel of Luke as he talks to Zechariah about the birth of his child. What's in a name? What's in a name? Well, let me tell you a few names. Zechariah. The, the, the name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. Who is married to Elizabeth whose name means God is my oath, who have a son named John, which means Yahweh is gracious. And the prophet Malachi, which incidentally that name means my messenger, talks about the prophet who is like Elijah, which means my God is Yahweh. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think and I ask, well, what's in a name? With all of these names and the meanings of these names, something big is about to happen. Now, my name, my real name is Isaac. And it means, well, laughter. Mm. Not quite as august as those other names, is it? And I'm getting a bit of a complex here. The guy who is named laughter 
being tasked with talking about an event involving all these folks with these very powerful names. What's in a name? Pastor Joe reminded us last Sunday of the answer. What's in a name? Thank you, Pastor Joe. It always humbles us, doesn't it? There's a lot in what's in a name. Sometimes names have powerful meanings in our life. And the study guide that I've already talked to you about from uh, 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 this week and the study guide from last week help us think about the names in our lives. I want to share with you a situation, a story that happened to Pastor Joe and, and me this past week. We, we went out to a local breakfast. I don't want to uh, say the name of the establishment because they haven't sent us our check for free advertising yet. But we went to a local restaurant and to have breakfast and to talk and to, to do some things that pastors do. And our server was named Monica. Now, that may seem normal enough to you, just sort of an average name. But I was stupefied when I heard that her name was Monica. It's not a name that you hear, or at least I don't hear it very much anymore. But there's a story to that name that's really powerful in my life. Now, I'm a great admirer of a guy named St. Augustine, or if you're more highbrow, St. Augustine, okay? St. Augustine, St. Augustine, I'm going to say Augustine from now on. So those of you who say it should be pronounced Augustine will know that I know that. I'm just choosing not to do it. (laughs) St. Augustine was a great theologian of the church. You probably have heard passages from two of his most famous books that you might not even recognize as being such august writings. His two, he wrote tons of books, but his big, biggest books were his book Confessions, which chronicles his conversion to Christianity, and The City of God. And, and most folks don't know how significantly that book influenced Western civilization on issues of free will, evil, while there is suffering. If you're taking a college course on any of those great philosophical questions and your professor is not talking about Augustine and the city of God, drop the course. It's worthless because that book has been so significant and influential to our culture and our civilization. Augustine lived in about the mid-fourth century. This is about the time that Christianity has just been made legal in the empire. Augustine himself was North African. And he was a party animal. Most folks don't expect that phrase coming up after I've shared all the great things about Augustine. I mean, he spent his youth drinking, visiting brothels, and otherwise living a life that would make the worldliest of you blush. And like all of us, Augustine had a mom. And guess what his mom's name was? Monica. Now, it gets better. Monica, like any good mother should, followed her son to every bar, mm, to every brothel. Imagine how embarrassing that was. And while Augustine was inside the bars and the brothels, well, indulging his flesh, shall we say, Monica would kneel on her knees outside 
and pray. How would you like to have your mom go to every bad place you went and stand outside and pray? Augustine got so tired of this that he left uh, North Africa and went to Italy. As a matter of fact, her incessant following him and her incessant praying forced him, so he says, to reject Christianity even more forcefully than he had already done. So he leaves North Africa, goes all the way to Rome and to Italy, parties it up in Milan, and guess who follows him? Monica. In Milan, Augustine meets a famous preacher named Ambrose, which incidentally means immortal, where under the preaching of Ambrose, he finally repented and became a follower of Jesus Christ. And his life changed drastically. He studied for the ministry, and he went on to become, as I've already shared with you, one of the most influential voices in the church, and frankly, in Western civilization. And I am convinced, because you know who gets the credit for his conversion? Ambrose. <laughs> you know who I credit for his conversion? Monica. Because there is nothing more powerful than a mother who prays. Thirty years of praying. Thirty years of following her son to every seedy, backwoods, worthless place that there is to go, on her knees, amidst the shame of knowing what her son was doing, praying. And as she prayed, her son ran further and further from Christ. Until one day, when it all changed. So, on one Mother's Day, many, 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 many years ago, I decided that Monica would be a great person to preach on for Mother's Day. So I preached a sermon on Monica. Well, in the congregation that day, there was a mother and a daughter, a praying mother <laughs> and a partying daughter who had begrudgingly come to church to shut her mother up for that Mother's Day. Y'all know folks like that, right? After the sermon, the mother brought her daughter to me and said, Pastor, I'm Monica and this is my Augustine. Probably not the best way to open up conversation. Well, as the months turned into years, the prayers of that Monica were answered. And since we live stream now, well, I'm not going to tell you any more of that story because they may be watching today. But I do want to leave you with this. Mom, if you're praying, don't give up. Don't stop. 30 years, Monica prayed. Don't stop praying. That's good advice for you dads, too. What's in a name? Well, Augustine, as you might guess, means exalted. And old Augustine, old exalted himself, was never forgotten in the prayers of his mother, Monica which means 
she who guides. So at that restaurant, as that dear sister brought Pastor Joe and I our coffee, I was overwhelmed with those moments in our life that, as Luke 1, says, the Most High God, the God who because of who He is, because of His position, His might, His power, His authority, sees our life from a different perspective, a full perspective, a perspective that identifies our trajectory, a perspective that you and I can never see. And that God sends into our life Monicus, calls us to be Monicus, reminds us with Zacharias that Yahweh remembers, seals us with Elizabeth, which means God is my oath, through Malachi's God's messengers, that the John, Yahweh is gracious, is our hope. And then we become Elijah's. My God is Yahweh. What's in a name? My brothers, if you weren't at the Brotherhood breakfast yesterday morning, I'm sorry. It was a powerful breakfast. I've added this to the manuscript since I've already written it. Four men courageously and bravely got up in front of a room full of men and told their stories. Their stories of brokenness, their stories of rebellion, their stories of, dare we say it, sin. Told stories of how their lives were a wreck. And in each one of those voices, they also shared a story of a Monica, of a Malachi, of a Zechariah, of an Elizabeth who came into their life and introduced them to Emmanuel. God is with us. What's in a name? Jesus. Which, by the way, means Yahweh saves. Let me summarize this. First of all, names imply relationships, don't they? I mean, when we meet someone, we're looking for connections. We begin with what? Hi, I'm Ike. And then they say, hi, Mike, nice to meet you. <laughs> it's really annoying. We then share some of those things about ourselves, don't we? I do this, I come from here. We're always looking for a connection. You become a brother or a sister, how? By being in relationship, right? With someone else. You are a son or a daughter, how? Because you're in relationship with someone else. And we become children of God. Because our relationship with the God who has spent time and memorial crying out for us, calling us, pursuing us, and carrying us even when we didn't want to be carried. What's in a name? God saw that we couldn't come to Him. 
God saw that we couldn't jump the chasm between us and Him. And so, unlike what any other false God has done throughout the history of human stories and myth, our God, the true God, the one true Creator of the universe, comes to us. Emmanuel. It's not just the birth of a baby that we celebrate like any other baby. It's God. And Zechariah holds his son John in his arms. And he knows that the one whom his son will prepare the way for, Jesus, will save us from our sin. And so... Jesus, meaning God saves, has come into our life. What's in a name? Well, God wants to give you a new name. Righteousness, like Pastor Joe reminded you last week. Child, beloved, one who is forever safe, one who is always loved, one who is never forsaken. And you might say to yourself, but I've been given other names by other people. Sinner? Well, yeah, you, you and I are. Broken? Yep. Rebellious? Uh-huh. But like Monica, God is following you. To every seedy alley, every dark path, every moment of rebelliousness and anger and brokenness, outside of every bar and brothel, even when you're running further and faster, God is calling you, inviting you, and loving you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter whose bed you've slept in, God wants to embrace you, make you new, redeem you, and give you a future. Well, what do I have to do, Pastor? Well, that's the beauty. You can't do anything. It's all been done for us. Well, I need to do something, Pastor. All right. Here's what you do. Surrender. If there's someone in this room today or online joining us and you haven't surrendered, consider that today. You don't need to run to God. Just stop running and he'll catch you. He's made a way for all of us. And the Holy Spirit may whisper to your hearts, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, your Lord and your Savior? And through that faith, salvation will manifest itself in your life. Father, I pray that if there is someone in this room or online with us today whose heart so desperately wants to surrender to you 
that you would pour about upon them the courage for them to trust themselves, their families, their lives, their eternity into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've made that decision this morning and you're online, there's a button you can click on. Let us know so that we can join with you as God takes control and brings joy to your life. If there's anyone in this room today following the service, elders will be up front. I pray that you'll come and you'll share that decision with them so that together we can walk with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ.